0: not proud but-
1: and Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here, and today I'm holding space for Michael Gallagher. Now Michael has spent a lifetime studying what causes some people to adapt and transform to match their circumstances while others struggle to find their way. In his research on transformation, Michael realized there were only a few big building blocks that everyone needed to build upon to create lasting change. He's the author of Waking Up, a guide for transformation, and has a passion for sharing these life-changing tools with others. Michael is not speaking at conferences, coaching, or writing, you'll likely find him traveling with his family, maybe not this year, but hopefully again soon, and learning about something new or telling one of his four daughters a dad joke. Michael Gallagher, welcome to the Bubble Hour.
2: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
1: I'm glad to have you. So I'm going to just start by turning the airspace over to you and asking you to tell us about yourself, Michael, and tell us your story.
2: Well, thank you, Gene. As I start telling my story, I I would start by saying it's a lot of what I wrote about in my book, Waking Up, A Guide for Transformation. Um, You probably won't get the whole thing here, but if I miss anything, you can get it there. Uh, It was an unusual um, circumstance, I think, that led me to addiction and alcoholism, though I think the underlying causes of it were very similar to what everybody else uh, deals with. Um, As a kid, um, our household, I had three older brothers, mom and a dad, um, but our household was a a different sort of place than many in that my father was a career criminal. He was an addict, uh, ended up going to prison uh, when I was eight years old, Um, and through that, uh, that example of him. Um, I think is early on what really marked me or um, really programmed me for that kind of a life of criminality and addiction. But on the opposite side of the spectrum was my mother who accepted uh, a high mind control group or a cult uh, belief system as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So we had this real dichotomy of uh, almost a perfect uh, by the book, strange cult lifestyle with my mother and then the example of a criminal and an addict and my father. Um as a kid, you know, I, I say that about my dad being a criminal and an addict. But to me and in our house, uh, what's interesting is he was an extremely loving, kind man. Um he, he would, you know, you could always expect him to smile, to give you a hug, to be warm. He wasn't violent with us. Yet to the outside world, it was a different person. We would hear stories about him from his associates and uh, the things he did and about the violent nature he had. Uh, I, I remember he spent, he was in prison before I was born off and on. I remember hearing stories about a man that he uh, beat um, to the point of being in the critical care unit of the hospital for several months with a metal mop bucket ringer. Uh, over a candy bar in prison. Another person that when he was on the streets, he, um, put their teeth against a curb and stomped on their head, and knocked out all their teeth. Um, that's not the man I knew for the most part. So trying to fit those two individuals as, you know, which one do you choose as your hero as a kid, uh, was a difficulty. I write about that more in the book. Um, eventually What happened is he went to prison and we were raised uh, in this very strange mind controlling religion where every small detail of our lives was controlled in one, one manner or another socially, you know, what we were able to, to watch, if we had a TV, what we were able to watch on TV, the people that we would um, call our friends, you weren't allowed to have friends that were outside of the church group, um, things like that. So. And then there's, there were other things that caused us to feel different than the world around us. Things like celebrating holidays, celebrating birthdays, all those little things that make you feel different and isolated were magnified. Um, so I learned early on um, to chase you know, those little things that didn't matter. In, in the real world, they didn't matter if I ate a cupcake in a classroom for a birthday, but it co- caused me to be dishonest about it. Um, And that was a very core part of my personality for many years because of that. Um, If someone were to ask about that, you know, we would have to face talking to the elders in the church and, you know, things like that. So even in the little things growing up, I learned that just by being dishonest about it, then I could just ignore it and do what I wanted. And that really fed into um, the real problem with addiction for me. And so as I grew up, I I adopted that belief system into my mid-20s. And drugs and alcohol were not a problem for me. Um, You know, small things when you're, you know, experimenting a little bit in your teen years, but nothing terrible. Um, Yet, as the stress and the pressure of being in that organization and this ideal of perfection uh, that's expected of you, never being able to live up to that and not having a place in the universe. Without uh, um, without having some work to do, as we grew up and as we were isolated like that, uh, I didn't have the problem that um, some folks have in their teens and their mid-20s. but the pressure from it, really, uh, both the religion and with my father's example, um, led me into having some uh, pretty severe uh, emotional and mental Issues, uh, battling with uh, post traumatic stress syndrome um, for a long time, waking up having nightmares in the night, start, you know, just all kinds of symptoms with that. And I found as I slowly moved away from that church, I found that what really set my nerves at ease, where I was able to get through that, was by drinking. So I would, you know, have a few glasses of bourbon every night. At the same time, because I still held the belief after I left, because I couldn't live up to the standards that they set. Um, I still held on to the belief that we were part of God's chosen people. Anyone that was not a part of that um, was at risk of dying tomorrow, the next day, very, very soon in Armageddon. So believing that I was very soon to die in that belief system, along with finding some solace in uh, drinking and calming my nerves that way, Really led to no limits in what I was willing to do uh, when it came to burying emotional issues with alcohol and drugs. Um, from there, I started really spending a lot of time with a couple of other ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who had left, and uh, we got involved in, you um, know, drugs like many people do, uh, and especially um, cocaine became my uh, primary uh, substance use disorder. Uh, beyond alcohol, which alcohol was bad enough as it is. And that led me down uh, the path of uh, really spiraling out of control. By the time I was about 30, I was married uh, had, and really wanted to get clean, but just didn't know how. Um, was using an, an immense amount of cocaine at the time. And finally went to uh, check myself into a treatment facility, without my family knowing at this point, because I had been disfellowshipped from the church, so they didn't talk or um, really have anything to do with me. Um, Disfellowshipping is a term they use for excommunication. Um, And as I was sitting there checking myself into that first treatment center, my phone rang and it was one of my brothers. And he asked me to meet them at the emergency room. And it was that day that my dad died. So it took me a little while, it took me a few months, really beyond the death of my father, to get back to that first treatment facility. But um, at least there, I came out of that treatment program believing that I had a, a severe problem with cocaine and that I was addicted to it and I had to you know, follow steps to get past that, but not really convinced that alcohol was any sort of a problem for me. It was um, kind of that, I think an awfully lot of folks that go into recovery go through that at first. So it was really a stair-stepped recovery for me, you know, admitting for a little while and then not. And then the people I was hanging around with too uh, were people that were very new in recovery. So we weren't really good support mechanisms for one another. So after a number of years continuing to drink, continuing to drink, it just, my, my professional life was fine because I found a place where I was able to uh, do that at will. I was a sales guy in the technology space. And, you know, it was happy hours after work, sometimes lunch, happy hours, corporate meetings, uh, conferences, they all revolved around drinking. Professionally, I did fine. I was functional. But my life and, you know, the, the inner peace I had was non-existent, which led me uh, finally to my third in. I know I kind of went through a number of years there very quickly, but my third treatment was really where um, I finally, for the first time, found some peace. And it was uh, not necessarily because of the treatment center I was in, but because I found a path of. Uh, I was reading a lot while I was there. I had I was in a poor mental state. I had become suicidal, um, but I I started picking up on the idea that maybe a Buddhist path would work for me. And I began reading a lot by the Dalai Lama and other uh, Buddhist writers and picked up a meditation practice. And that, for me, has made all the difference. And it's something I carry to this day, and it's a big part of my recovery process um, to the point that today it's one of the things I do for work is we train in mindfulness practices for corporate environments to help their employees uh, deal with stress and anxiety. So that's me in a nutshell. It didn't take as long as uh, possibly it should have.
1: (laughs) Well, there's always so much more to dig into along the way, and we have a lot to talk about. I, I really enjoyed reading your book and seeing the path that you took as you walked yourself out of a place of darkness. Let's start by talking about the influence of the religious culture that you grew up in. And you mentioned that as a child, you weren't allowed to partake in birthday parties or Christmas concerts and that kind of thing. That is an intentional way of making people different within a church or any kind of a group. So talk about the purpose of those kinds of rules that set people apart and why they're dangerous and maybe even how they parallel into addiction and recovery.
2: Yeah. um, So it's my belief that it, and it's not just mine, you know, professionals in uh, psychotherapy, believe that in cult teachings one of the ways people are held captive to mind control is by making them feel separate from the social structure around them either they physically separate them or emotionally and spiritually they separate them and that was very much uh, a part of the culture of that group from you know infancy uh, we were taught that we were different we were chosen by god yet at the same time we weren't Really worthy of God, unless we are acting a certain way, so um, by socially isolating people like that, it becomes easier to control them. Does that answer your question?
1: It does, yeah and I'm just curious as to your thoughts on this, if you saw that echoing into some of your mindset when you were in active addiction, because um, we often tell ourselves that we're different. We hurt more than other people, or we struggle more. We're not as bad or whatever whatever our addiction tells us about being different and special and other than. Did it make it easier for your brain to play those kinds of tricks on you?
2: Yeah. Um, I don't know because I don't have the other experience, but I can tell, I can tell you that that was a huge problem for me in trying to find sobriety. Um, In every room I would walk into uh, in recovery, I was always different than everyone there. Um, Especially early on when I still held the beliefs of the church, I couldn't imagine that, and I'm talking about 12-step groups now, I couldn't imagine that this group of people that had found recovery had anything that they could tell me about a power greater than myself because they were obviously and I'm talking from my cult uh-huh. brain now. They were obviously misled victims of a system set up by the devil. <laughs> so, and I, I don't hold that belief any longer. Um, but different than always, I can find the different than in any situation. And I could then, and I still can, if I allow myself to, and I really think it's, um, it's a strange way that ego is set up in us. Uh, For me personally, um, ego can be, I'm less than or Uh I'm better than, but it's always different than.
1: I always feel like our addictive thinking looks for differences, that it leverages any place it can find differences. And it's really when we start to embrace our sameness with other people that we know we're on our way to some healing. I'm curious about your thoughts on being disfellowed, being shunned by your family and friends and the people in your church. Are addiction rates higher among people that have gone through that?
2: I can't tell you statistically um right now I could look them up, but I can tell you that um ex-Jehovah's witnesses, people that leave have very high rates of alcoholism, addiction, substance use disorders. I also am, anecdotally, I can say, I think the rates are pretty high within the organization. High mind control groups in general attract people that are emotionally ill because they, they offer, you know, the easy answers on a platter to life. Um, whatever, you know, whatever struggle somebody is having. So I think that those groups, um, automatically kind of attract those people anyway, so it does, it makes sense that on exiting, they would have substance use disorders. My own personal experience has been a high percentage of the people that left that I knew because it was a very tight knit community. So I knew a lot of people and, you know, as they would leave, you would hear about it. They did deal at least for a period of time. And some of them still actively are dealing with addiction issues. Does that answer your question?
1: It does, yeah, and I want to talk some more about that too. Do you feel that for some, that religion is their addiction?
2: Well, um, from my own experience, I can say that I believe my that was one of the things that my mother used in place of drugs and alcohol. Uh, it gave her a feeling just just like alcohol did for me a feeling of comfort, right? And she was a, she was willing to give up in a very similar way. She was willing to give up. Large chunks of herself and her own personality, her own autonomy, her own decision making, to a different group of people that claimed to be representative of God, because it gave her that comfort and it gave her those easy answers. It, that's pretty similar, I think, to the way I used alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the comfort, the easy answer to stress in my life is to have a couple of drinks.
1: You know, it's interesting. I hear a lot of compassion in your anger and not accusation. Um, Sometimes when people have a disagreement with any particular faith, there's an anger there and a hurt and a, a bitterness. And as you talk about your mother and her Leaning on her faith as kind of a crutch, in the same way that that you used drugs and alcohol as your crutch. Uh, I can hear compassion in you, not anger. Did it take time for you to get to that?
2: Oh, oh sure. Yeah, I think that, that it took time. But um, I think the reason that is, though, is the idea that we are all so similar. So, a word you used earlier was commonality. I can look at both my parents, my father and my mother and other people in that organization that my mom was in they're they're flawed humans but it doesn't take away the good they have my mom was a wonderful woman um you know she worked hard she gave us a a strong work ethic uh, at least some semblance of morality or um ethics where my father probably did not add that to our life so today my way of looking at that with compassion is um where at least what got me there is through a lens of gratitude rather than focusing on, you know, mm. the bad. Uh, I try to focus on what, what I'm thankful for that they did. They were flawed humans, um, but they did their best.
1: We're going to talk uh, a little bit more about your perspective on gratitude in a few minutes, but I want to first take a moment and talk about what you, mentioned is that when you first went into treatment, it was for cocaine addiction. But you thought that alcohol was okay to continue using afterwards because you didn't really think it was the problem. You didn't think it was the same or as serious as a drug addiction. And so your your addiction really transferred from one to the other. So can you talk a little more about the idea of that denial and why it's dangerous, but also for some people, how it is the only possible path to sobriety for them is to lay down things one at a time.
2: Yeah. I think many people take that stair-stepped approach as they figure stuff out. For me, I think the denial was largely in, I, I still carried with me, even though I wasn't a part of the church, they had kicked me out. I still carried with me the belief system. And so the belief system was such that, uh, illicit drugs, Or, you know, cocaine, hair, you know, any of the drugs other than alcohol were sinful. But alcohol was completely acceptable. So carrying that belief through that, I think, is what um, caused me to hold on to it longer. And also the rapid decline in my life using cocaine versus using alcohol. Um, Alcohol for me was a more gradual decline in the quality of my life. Um, where cocaine, you know, financially, emotionally, physically, you know, sent me to the bottom very fast. Mm. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It does. When you decided to give up alcohol, was it easier than you thought, Harder than you thought?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it depends on when when we're talking about, because when I tried to do it for a very long time, i would I would swear it off and I would go back to it. Primarily because I wanted to quit drinking for someone else. And I hadn't made a decision that I wanted something better for myself. So in that respect, yeah, it was it was very difficult. It took several years of of that kind of action. I'd swear it off, I'd go to a few meetings, I'd come back to it. But really, I had a moment of clarity, a moment of um, when I was meditating, the last treatment that I went through, um, where everything changed for me, um, I was really at the very bottom emotionally that I've ever been. Um, I was suicidal and i i was I remember it vividly. I was sitting on a picnic table on top of it out in about oh fifty to a hundred yards away from the main building um, and this facility's out in the middle of uh, rural America. And so I was surrounded by cornfields, you know, except for this little yard I was in and under the stars. And I just begged for help to the universe, to God, whatever name you want to put on it. I said, just help me. And I was meditating at the time and just a a peace came over me that I hadn't ever felt before in my life. Hearing someone say that coming from my mindset before, I would have laughed, <laughs> I would have said they were crazy. I would have, and all I have to offer is the evidence that since that happened for me, I was in a you know a very deep meditative state, and I saw myself as very connected for the first time to everyone and everything around me. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever had that feeling, or that even that thought that that could be the case. And since that time, it has not been difficult for me. At all. I've had no desire to drink or use drugs.
1: When you describe that moment in your book, you say you realize that you didn't have to earn your place in this world, that it's already yours. How did that feel?
2: That is um if you could see my face, it almost brings a tear to my eye when you say it. Um oh. <laughs> That is um one of the the most wonderful things. In my life today. And I think that's about as much as I can say without breaking down like a baby. But not that I think that's the only people that cry. But um, I think it's pretty healthy to cry. Um, For the very first time, you know, I was, uh, I had spent a lifetime believing I had to earn, I did not have a space in this universe if I didn't earn it. So the relief and the, the feeling of connectedness that that brought, that, that we each have a worthiness in us just because we are, just because we're here, we have a place here.
1: You talk about the idea of limiting beliefs, and I think this, this concept flows naturally out of what you've just said. When you've been raised in a cult, or in any type of very structured, relig- uh, rigid thought pattern, whether it's, you know, parenting or dysfunctional family dynamics, whatever it is, as you start to unpack that, it can be really hard to know what are the things that you were taught growing up. You know, it's, I mean, I can open a book on Jehovah Witness or Mormonism or Catholicism or any religion and look through the theology and tell you, oh, well, this is what you were taught growing up. But for the person that's raised in it, it's really hard to understand how the idea of my bed has to be made perfectly every day or my hair has to be cut a certain way, how all of these things come can come back from that. So it seems like it should be easy to sort out what's a church teaching and wasn't what it isn't. But for the person that was raised with that, it's so interwoven, it can really take decades to fully extract what ideas came from that type of thinking. Do you still find yourself viewing the world through that old lens on occasion?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question because I, I find it much, much less than I used to. Um, it's... It's in my nature now to question beliefs, almost always. If I have a really hard-held belief, I question it. Why do I believe that? Is it reasonable? But where I notice it probably more often than not is um, in parenting. Uh, You know, being raised with very strict, you know, who you can go out with, how late you can stay out. Some of those are good standards, right? Like I don't want my children out running the streets until one in the morning. But at the same time, so some, some of it is just I have to back off and say, well, wait a minute. Why do I feel that way? I know I'm protective of them, but why do I feel like my daughter shouldn't wear the dress she's wearing? Or um, why do I feel like you know, they shouldn't say a certain thing the way they said it to me? So um, things like that, I think I still catch myself and they're very ingrained. So um, yeah, it's just a, I'm a work in progress.
1: Oh, we all are. Definitely. Um, let's talk about the the blocks that you mentioned, that there are a few big blocks that everyone needs to build on to create lasting change. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, I, I would love to. Um, I think the first for me was really um, finding courage, and it was... I had never had the courage to say, yes, I have a problem. And this is similar to the first step in uh, 12 step programs. Yes, I have a problem. It's bigger than me. And I need help. Um, that, that took a little bit of courage in, or maybe even in, in most cases, a lot of courage to get there. That's a huge step. And I think it's because of, of fear and not so much fear of, you know, what could be better, but just fear of loss. What am I going to lose if I admit this? What am I going to lose if I make this change? So courage was a big part of it. And then after I had that experience uh, of, you know, that transcendent experience, my route, what it what I did was I started learning everything I could. I really set my mind to learning. Uh, why did meditation work so well for me? Uh, what are the actual effects? So learning was huge. Um, I started reading uh, an awfully lot of uh, books on cognitive behavioral therapy, self-help, spiritual books on Buddhism, things like that. Um, So learning was a huge part. Um, Questioning beliefs was a huge part. If I was holding on to a belief, I questioned it. Why is this the case? And I think that can be, for anyone, is a big step because – it's not just in the situation where, you know, coming out of a high mind control group or a cult that people need to question their beliefs. I wrote about this a little bit in the book. How many of us truly follow a path in our lives where they're not based on someone else's values or beliefs? You know, we have uh, people all over the place that go into a profession because it's what was said in front of them as the right one. What if they question that to see where their real place is in the world? What would really truly bring out, you know, the beauty that's inside of them? I I had to really question and look at and align my values and do some work around my values because I knew that I was not, when I was not living in line or in alignment with my values, or if I was living in alignment with someone else's values, I was unhappy. And I think that's where unhappiness for most people lies is when uh, we live outside of congruency of our values and then I started working a lot on uh, just some of the the you know things like gratitude and compassion. those were the two biggest things I was learning through studying Buddhism and um, compassion really has made, I believe the biggest difference in uh really transforming my experience as a human
1: i love what you wrote about compassion is more than just a feeling it also must include action can you expand on that a little for me
2: yeah i would love to Um, i use when i speak i use uh a story about my um my youngest daughter who's six now she was five when this happened and um we were talking about compassion and what it was, how it's a feeling of uh, feeling bad for someone that has gotten hurt or needs help, but it's also followed up by an action to help. And we were talking before school one day uh, of looking for ways at school, she was in kindergarten at the time, for ways she should she could show compassion to people at school that day. And so when she got home uh, in the afternoon, I asked her about it, you know, how did that go? Did you think of anything? And I mean, she just lit up. And she told me this story. She said, there was a little boy in the lunch line that fell down and he was crying. And so I waited to find out if, you know, she had heard all of it about the action part of it. And she said, so I ran over to him and I helped him up and I gave him a hug. Mm -hmm. That like one, and I say this in the book, it's a proud parenting moment. (laughs) Um, But two, it really illustrates how easy compassion can be. It's, it's not that hard to just look around and, you know, see people that need help, that are suffering in some way. And I think also that that's where, um, if we look uh, for commonalities in people, you know, we're, we're so much the same as everyone else. Uh, the Dalai Lama says uh, we're all 98% mm. the same.
1: So what is compassion without action? Is it sympathy or is it awareness?
2: Sympathy um, or possibly empathy.
1: Mm -hmm. depending on
2: if you've been yeah i think so
1: but the power is in taking that action and sometimes it's as simple as a kind word isn't it or just a you know a wink a nod and something that tells another person i see you
2: yeah a smile a a warm smile to the world can be an act of compassion
1: i really like that 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 is a new idea for me or a new awareness for me so i appreciate you saying that and i just took the action of telling you that (laughs) thank you uh I know that meditation is important to you and that you help others learn to meditate and understand the importance of it as a tool in the recovery toolkit. so I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about how meditation fits into your recovery and your life and ways that other people can make use of it themselves.
2: Yeah, so I would um meditation is hugely important uh, in my recovery uh, my My own routine is. Um, that I, I wake early in the morning because I have to carve out space for it, um, where you know there's not a lot of disturbances. I still have children at home, so our house can be pretty noisy. So I try to get up early before anyone else is up. Um, and I spend some time reading something spiritual, something uh self help or something educational. And then I spend 20 to 30 minutes meditating. And that really I think sets me up and puts my brain in the right space to address one day. And as I suggest that to other people that, hey, this really helped me, it might help you. What I often hear is, oh yeah, I tried to meditate and I'm just bad at it. (laughs) And I, I think the reason for that is that we get this idea that meditation is this, you sit down on a cushion or in a chair and you empty your mind out and you just go to this blissful space. And it hasn't been defined very well the the action of meditating, and really mindful meditation, all it is, is sitting in a comfortable way, and as thoughts come, as you as you you sit, as a thought comes, you just gently nudge it aside, and you think, I'll think about that later. I'm not going to right now. And it's that practice of, um, moving stuff aside that you gradually the the periods of time that you're able to have. Peace in your thoughts, without the constant monkey mind going on—you know, jumping from one thing to another to another to another—they uh, gradually increase. And then, what I find is that overflows into other parts of my life. And I'm certainly not perfect at it. <laughs> I never ever want to put that, you know, out there as if you know I have it all figured out. But um, you know, as I catch myself in traffic and somebody cuts me off. I can skip a beat and I can back off of that and, and give myself a moment to be in this space rather than just reacting. Because I think that for me, addiction and drinking, uh, it was a continuous reaction. I was either running towards something that was pleasurable or running away from something that I didn't want to deal with or I didn't like. And there was no space in between those two things.
1: The idea of, of staying with something intolerable or uncomfortable of sitting with it, I mean that's terrifying for a lot of us and, and sometimes the thing that we're terrified of is ourselves is the silence in our mind or the voices that come when our mind is still and silent so I, I know that nothing scared me more than the idea of meditating or yoga when I quit drinking because I was drinking to tolerate. The moment before I fell asleep, the only moment of my day that I couldn't get through without some stillness. So, how do you yeah. convince people to face the fear of what's in their own mind?
2: Um, I don't know if I do, honestly, uh, <laughs> but I think that when um, people are ready, you know they they will get there. Um, as far as picking up a meditation practice. It doesn't take much to see uh, real results with it. It's a you know a week straight of spending ten minutes meditating. You're going to see you know a difference in your anxiety levels in in even your thought process of uh, how you react to situations. It doesn't take very long to see results, and anybody can do it wherever they are. So I mean, it's such an easy thing that why wouldn't someone want to try it um there's this great book by uh Timothy Ferris i don't know if you're familiar with his podcast or not but it's called tools of, tools of titans and he on that podcast he has uh the, sorry the podcast is not called tools of titans i think it's called the 4 hour work week i'm not positive but um or just the Timothy Ferris show but in the book tools of titans he has uh laid out in it interviews of hundreds of like super high performers Um, in thought, in uh, athletics, in business, uh, wisdom traditions, things like that. And what was really interesting to me as I read through it, he said that the one thing that more of them have in common than anything else is some sort of uh, mindfulness practice. Really? Yeah. So to me, it's just kind of a no-brainer. If it can make that much of a difference in our performance, if it can make that much of a difference in our stress level, and dealing with, you know, this day, uh, why wouldn't I try it?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I should say for the record that uh, I have since found that my mind is a perfectly wonderful place to be. And I think that whatever fear I might've had of it was really being exaggerated by my addiction, uh, overblown and um, leveraged. My, I think my addictive thinking really leveraged that fear. Uh, and I quite enjoy stillness and quiet, and that's another way to think of meditation, isn't it? Of just being alone with ourselves and comfortable with ourselves in stillness.
2: Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I would like to hear more about that. When you say um, that you have since found that, um, where have you seen it uh, affect your life the most?
1: Probably in my. Ability to embrace doing yoga. I think that because of old traumas, I I had a real problem living in my whole body and accepting my entire body as part of myself. I gathered my presence up to my head and shoulders, and I lived up there, and the rest of my body just sort of dangled <laughs> below me. Um, but to me, part of my recovery was really landing in authenticity, which is something you've talked about already. And so for me, that meant learning to occupy my whole body, my mind, my limbs, my torso, um, my entirety, and, and to be authentically myself in body and in spirit and in thought.
2: That's awesome. That's a, um, that's a great way to look at it and to think about it. Um I'm more towards the I've done some yoga but I'm I'm going to look into that more my wife does cuz uh, Buddhist meditation does not involve the body a lot it's it's more of uh, just the mind but I have an interest in that Um I think where it's really I see a, a change from it is um in being able to be like in that moment when I'm giving one of my daughters a hug you know not thinking about something else actually residing in that moment and appreciating the beauty of life in the moment if that makes sense
1: oh definitely i think the idea of being here now <laughs> is greatly changing the, i think a lot of us are trying to rush past every moment and i don't to what end i don't know but we're rushing through life and just trying to tolerate every moment, and maybe some of that comes from what you said earlier about the power of understanding that you don't have to hustle for your worthiness that you're you're you don't have to earn your place here you you're here because you're meant to be here and you're valued by virtue of being here and when we really come to believe that, I feel like that's when we we can be still and we can have gratitude because we're not looking for some way to justify our existence or busy ourselves to, to look like we're okay.
2: Absolutely. I, I always, uh, before I found that, that idea, I was always living for later. Mm -hmm. It was, it was always something better later, but when that's, when that is your mantra, there's something better later, which was taught to us in the church. I mean, it was always, you know, this life right now is going to get better after Armageddon when you live in a paradise. When you're always looking to something later, there's not really any enjoyment right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that crosses mm-hmm. all kinds of boundaries. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. has that to some extent.
1: I mean, that's that's tapping into abundance. If you can really find the joy in in the everyday things, in Eating an egg or drinking a cup of coffee or having a conversation with a new friend, then that is where those are the sparkling moments that we are given. Those are, that's why we're here.
2: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's very seldom that I will look back through memories and like the happiest moments or the best moments that pop to hit into my mind or these mm-hmm. grand, you know, tremendous things that happened. It's almost always the little things that are so easy to. To just you know run past.
1: So, do you feel that the title of your book, "Waking Up," is this really what the title is? Is "Waking Up" to the wonder of every day?
2: Absolutely, that is, uh, and it it has to do with that, and also just that one moment in my life that I feel like I understood that for the first time.
1: You tell a story early in the book as well, an anecdote about your dad, one of your dad's expressions when people asked him how he was doing, he would say what?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, He was a neat guy. Um, You know, despite his imperfections, uh, you know, he came from a, a history of abuse, you know, terrible, like, but he was a very loving father. And as he got older, he had had a back injury. And so he was in pain all the time. And I would worry about him. So I would say, how are you doing today, Pop? And he would always say, well, nobody threw dirt on me last night. And what he meant by that was nobody buried. He didn't die and, and he wasn't buried. So if he woke up, there was opportunity and greatness in that day. And so I, I try to live by that mantra as well. Nobody threw dirt on me last night.
1: <laughs> I'm awake. I'm here. I'm ready for action.
2: <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's something good that can happen in this day.
1: Michael, thank you for spending time with me today. I really appreciate talking to you. How can our listeners find you and how can they get your book, Waking Up?
2: So the book is available on Amazon. Uh, You can go there, Waking Up, A Guide for Transformation. Or if you'd like, you can go to wakingupthebook.com. There's a link there that's easy to remember. And uh, for me personally, my website, my professional website is michaelgallagherspeaks.com.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you again for your time today. Thank you. I hope that you, you listeners have enjoyed my conversation with Michael Gallagher. Be sure to find his website and look for his book. I think you'll really enjoy it. And Michael, thank you again and listeners. Until next time, please take good
0: care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies to happen We think you're strong You'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the old I did that. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free